Okay, guys, welcome back to the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. This is Patricia. I hope you are doing well and enjoying your Lunar New Year holiday. I've been having a really great weekend, spending time with friends and family, and just getting to think about the new year.、Um, you know, for those of you who are abroad、um, and not being able to be with family,、uh, I got you. Hopefully, we can kind of sit around this metaphorical fire, talk a little bit about Lunar New Year, particularly if you're someone who is,、um, you know, a little bit a little bit detached from the celebrations、uh, that are typically associated with Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, whatever you like to call it, because that's what this episode is talking about today. Um, as you guys know,、uh, this podcast kind of circulates around my career as a Chinese teacher, but there's so much hidden within that identity,、um, particularly with me as a person who is second generation,、um, isn't a native Chinese speaker, and feels a lot of the time like I'm teaching my、uh, language in a culture that is secondhand to me. And so Chinese New Year tends to be a big part of that experience. I feel if you look at the standards for teaching world language, one of the kind of gimmies about teaching culture is teaching holidays, right?、Um, this is applicable to like basically every single language. It's kind of like the most obvious thing when you're talking about a culture of a certain language is what holidays they celebrate. Because within that, you can talk about traditions, you can talk about food, you can talk about if you want to get deeper about like interpersonal relationships, family relationships, sociological things. Um, there's just a lot you can kind of launch off of with holidays. You can go as deep or as not deep as you'd like.、Um, and for me, teaching Lunar New Year, teaching Chinese New Year in my classes, for me has always been a little bit existentially challenging.、Um, if if only because it's existentially challenging because of like a lot of the other reasons why I find Chinese teaching existentially challenging, and a lot of it has to do with again the idea that like. I don't feel like I fit in with a lot of the other, like the larger Chinese teaching culture, if you will. If only because, like most Chinese teachers who are teaching abroad, are like native speakers of Chinese who grew up in a Chinese speaking culture, and so when it comes to holidays, it's not as if they're like teaching, you know, this like abstract, you know. Thing from another culture, it's that they're teaching their own culture, and so a lot of like the activities and lesson plans,、uh, I feel like a kind of. Design from that standpoint, and so in the past, when I've looked at like lesson plans or like ideas for teaching Lunar New Year, it oftentimes feels like I'm wearing clothes that are not my own clothes. And so, this week we're talking about Lunar New Year.、Uh, we're going to start off with talking a little bit about how I teach Lunar New Year before we get to the, all like the existential crises stuff. So, if you're like a second generation Asian American like me,、um, and you're here because you want to talk about like. You know your your existential identity angst、uh, with regards to how you celebrate Chinese New Year,、uh, Lunar New Year, and all these holidays that feel like they should be a part of you but are not really a part of you. We're going to talk about that for sure.、Um, but hopefully, this part will also feel interesting to you,、um, since this is obviously you know still somewhat of a teaching podcast. So、um, anyway, this week was kind of a shortened week for us because we had Martin Luther King Day on Monday, so we had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday.、Um, a lot of the times, if you see how teachers. Do Lunar New Year, and I think this is part of the reason why I always feel so intimidated when it comes to teaching holidays. Is that Chinese language teachers tend to get really excited about holidays because, I mean, for very worthwhile reasons. Because I feel like with holidays, it's kind of like your one. Your one chance in the year to kind of like chill on the grammar stuff and just do fun things, right? You can make food, you can do crafts, you can take kids out on outings, like all this fun stuff where you don't feel tied down to the textbook for once in your life.、Um, 
So, like, when you look on, I'm on this Facebook group with a lot of like native speaking Chinese teachers, which has been a really great resource actually,、um, and also good practice for me because all of the messages are in Chinese, so I just feel incredibly incompetent all the time. But you know, it's good, good for me. It's like taking vitamins,、um, and so it's been super intimidating seeing like for the past month. Like past month, that entire group has just been like posts on like ideas for like, you know, like paper cutting activities, lantern making activities. Like some teacher being like, "I've made dumplings with my students for like five years in a row. I'm running out of ideas. What should I make?" And of course, some teachers like, "Oh, have you tried making niangao yet?" And everyone's like, "Duh."、Um, so delightful discussions like that, but it's like super extra. And I feel like there's just so much you can do with teaching Lunar New Year in terms of activities,、um, which overwhelms me rather than excites. Me right because number one,、um, as a teacher, I'm not like super into arts and crafts, bringing in lots of materials, just because I'm lazy.、Um, this is this is a personal weakness, and I probably should do more on this front. I feel, but only because okay, to my to my credit, I also feel like world language teachers.、Um, Tend to have that like expectation for ourselves that we have to be very artsy and crafty and like you know be pseudo elementary school teachers sometimes.、Um, and my take is like, dude, I'm about communication and I'm about teaching language and culture. I feel can be taught in ways、um, apart from me having to go to like Michaels to buy lots and lots of craft supplies so they can make like a, a paper dragon that they'll hang up on their refrigerator and then throw out within two months. And so,、um, anyway, that I think you need to understand that as my perspective towards teaching culture. I feel like that could somewhat. You could easily argue against as being kind of lazy and maybe not as dedicated, but I feel like there's different ways to teach culture.、Um, and the reason why I feel justified in maintaining my take towards teaching culture in this way is because I'm about all about learning goals, right? Which every teacher really is. But、um, whenever I'm angsting about like, ooh, how should I teach X, Y, Z? I think the temptation for me as someone who is still relatively young、um, as a teacher and still lacking in experience, my temptation is to go to like what other teachers have. Done and just copy what they do, right? Because I mean, some teacher who has had like twenty five years of experience and has done things in a certain way, who am I to say like, oh, I can do things better, right? And so my temptation is to go and just like copy what they do, or at least like, and and this isn't even like you know anything you know. All that well thought out on my end, which is why I try not to do it.、Uh, but generally, my my bad habit is to look at the outcomes、um, and try to like figure out how I can replicate that same outcome, which is not a super great way of really doing anything. But it's something that I personally tend to do. And when I found out that like, when I realized that I was doing this, I just like realized number one, this is not good teaching, and number two, this is making more work for myself because it's really like you're seeing like the end result of something and then trying to piece together the roadmap by yourself. You know. Given your lack of experience, and so I decided, let's not do that. Let's go back to like what matters to me as a teacher, what matters to me that my students get from my classes as a teacher, and. If those are my so-called learning goals for my students, then everything that I do should be pointed in that direction, including teaching culture, including teaching Chinese New Year. And so I talked about this last week in greater length.、Um, but for me, in terms of teaching Chinese language, my overall learning goal, my hope for my students, the reason why I want them to be able to learn Chinese and speak it and read it and be able to communicate in it is because it's important to me that more American kids, as long as I'm teaching in the U.S., more American kids are able to interact first. Stand with Chinese people, understand their points of view, understand their culture, understand their way of life, be able to empathize with them, and I believe firmly that you can't really, truly, truly do that unless、uh, and get a full.
whole picture about like an entire country of 1.4 billion people unless you are able to speak in their native language. There's there are ways to obviously connect with any culture in your own native language. Like there's enough resources and enough bilingual people in every country to be able for you to be able to do that. But I feel like if you really want to get to know a people, if you really want to empathize with them, you need to be able to speak their language. And I think there is a certain dearth of empathy between Westerners and Chinese people that have you know resulted in a whole bunch of like you know just a whole bunch of messiness. Um, that it's not to say that like fluency in another language will solve that,、um, but I think even the process of going through learning another language that is so different from English, I think,、uh, is part of building that empathy. And so that's my overall learning goal: is for my students when they emerge from my classroom, why do they want to learn Chinese? It's not for capitalistic means. It's not because I want them to get a better job.、Um, it's because I want them to be people who can connect with Chinese people and empathize with them and like communicate with them in meaningful ways. And so. Go, going for, that's a very very broad sort of learning goal, I think, and I think the way that I think of it is intentionally broad, if only because then you can fit lots of stuff in it, right? Then you can justify a lot of things, and that's not the real reason.、Um, but I feel like as I'm thinking in terms of that goal, then teaching culture, teaching these holidays, ends up being a lot more clear cut of a path than I had originally thought. And so to go back to Lunar New Year, to go back to Chinese New Year.、Um, The way that I teach Chinese New Year, the way that I frame it,、um, is within that context of knowing that Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year. Let's let's call it Chinese New Year because the way that I teach it is the the way in which Chinese people celebrate Lunar New Year. I understand that like calling Lunar New Year Chinese New Year as kind of like a blanket statement for the entire holiday is inherently problematic, and I do talk do tell this to all of my students.、Um, the idea that the lunar the Lunar New Year is celebrated by folks who traditionally use the lunar calendar, and that is that far. Encompasses beyond just mainland China.、Uh, encompasses people in Korea and Vietnam, diaspora people, etc., etc. And so that's important for them to know,、um, if only because you know, just calling it Chinese New Year kind of builds into like this pre-existing sort of, I don't know. Motif of China being the end all be all for all things East Asian, which believe it or not is still a thing that exists in people's minds today.、Um, so that's something I do make clear, and it's something I'm very aware of. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to just refer to this as Chinese New Year because the way that I'm framing、Chi、Lunar New Year is through Chinese traditions, culturally Chinese traditions. So people who are like ethnically Chinese, culturally Chinese, would identify themselves as such、um, how they celebrate the Lunar New Year. So just a quick terminology thing. So,、uh, anyway, the way that I want to frame these holidays is not necessarily as like an aesthetic sort of thing, but kind of like let's understand why Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, is such a big deal, so important in an existential and emotional way for so many people, and what is it about Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, that they value? What is it about this holiday that like kind of tugs at their heartstrings and makes it such a, an important cultural and personal and emotional touch point for them? And so that's a very like complex and deep topic to even like broach. Upon where you're talking to like sixth graders, but I think one of the things that makes this a really good opportunity、um, is that you have a lot of opportunities to show rather than tell, which is something that you know as a language teacher you want to do as much as possible, at least from my perspective. If only because, like you know, in terms of what the traditions are and what Chinese people do and these whatevers and food they eat, I feel like at this point in time there probably existed in the past, right, when information wasn't as readily available, and if you wanted to find out what you know the typical traditions were for a Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, you'd have to go to the library and look it up in an encyclopedia.、Um, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm getting this wrong, maybe I'm like not giving the 1980s enough credit, but、um, you know, there was a time and a place where like. 
like that was kind of the function of the classroom. It was like meant to be a place where one of the only places where you could really just receive information, receive facts. Um, nowadays, I mean, you have kids who would literally have all the information they would ever need, all the facts they would ever need, literally in their pocket. And so, in that sense, what is the function of the classroom? Well, the function of the classroom, in my opinion, is to lead kids. Kids are not going to proactively go and search out these facts on their own. And so, it's as if the classroom is sort of like a catalyst、um, to. To cause kids to want to make those Google searches on what the tradi- traditions are, what those foods are, to kind of prompt them to to point themselves in that direction, because otherwise, you know, what motivation would they otherwise have? And so, under that pretense, that's kind of how I frame my lessons for Lunar New Year. Again, I'm more about showing rather than telling. And I found, you know, to simplify things, right? Given that like this is really only like a 50 minute period that you have to kind of present all of this. One thing that I found really useful is that I don't know if you guys know or have been made aware of this. I think. More people are knowing about this,、uh, you know, outside of China than not. But like around Lunar New Year,、um, there are all these super cheesy commercials slash short films that come out made by like made by large corporations, made by like you know cell phone companies, insurance companies, telecommunications companies, all of that. Um, TV broadcasting channels—they make these like short films about Chinese New Year.、Um, the short films tend to be kind of repetitive, and they all kind of tend to be around the same theme, which is like family togetherness. Which, understandable, given that that's kind of the theme of Chinese New Year as a whole.、Um, but those films I found are super great in being able to show kids not just like. Um, not just how family is such an integral part of how Chinese people view this holiday.、Um, But also, what those family relations look like. This idea of one question that I always get is like、uh, from my students is like, oh, how do Chinese people choose which side of the family to go home to? To which I'm just like. There is no choice. Everyone has this one hometown, and this idea of like a singular hometown is actually a very uniquely Asian idea. And so that kind of even you know provides itself a kind of like a a, a pathway to have that discussion.、Um, questions like that always come up, and so、uh, it helps kids like see what those family relations are like, what the relationships between parents and children are like. That it's not always harmonious.、Um, that it's not as if like you know people you know, Westerners tend to understand that like Chinese people, Asian people. Uh, tend to have a lot of deference for their elders. That filial piety—I love teaching the word filial piety, Xiaoshun, in my classes because it's such like an uncommon word in English and such a common word in Chinese. And so, if you're a Westerner, if you're an English speaker, your first reaction is like, "Why in the world are we learning the word for filial piety? I've literally never used this word before in my entire adult life."、Uh, but then you realize that the word Xiaoshun is like. Very, very important. Very, very common in Chinese culture, and you have to think about why certain words are more common in one language than another. Hmm. I feel like those discussions end up being far more interesting than just talking about like these are foods we eat during Nianyefan, blah blah blah.、Um, and those tend to be more interesting. I feel to my students, even my younger students, who,、um, you know, despite the fact that they're like what eleven, twelve years old, they still understand. If you tell them like, hey, how would you feel if you were living abroad in a country that didn't celebrate Christmas and you had to go to school during Christmas and you didn't get to go home? How would you feel about that? They understand that emotion right away. At that age,、um, particularly kids who come from families who. Um, you know, like in my school, they make a big deal out of. 
family holidays like Christmas and, and Thanksgiving and things like that. So even young kids can have an emotional sort of touch point from which they can make those comparisons. And so um, I found these short films to be, I mean, I don't know. I think if you're an adult and you're looking at this and you know it's coming from some like random corporation that's trying to like sell you something, you're like, man, this is super emotionally manipulative and probably unethical. But they're also really well-made films and I feel they serve the purpose to which I'm trying to achieve in my classroom. And so I'm on a moral and ethical standpoint, I'm okay with myself with that. But the other reason why I find that these uh, short films are really, really nice to use is that they, uh, they're they not made for Western audiences necessarily. Um, some of them are, but 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 most of them are made so they can sell things to like Chinese people in China. Um, and so because of that, like the view of the pictures, the visuals that they have of China in those films tend to be quite authentic, right? Um, I feel like a lot of like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of the visual media um, of China that is directed towards so-called foreigners, I mean, this makes sense, right? But you're trying to show like your best face, your most glossiest, shiniest, most sophisticated side of yourself to the outsiders, um, rather than like the stuff that is like not as nice. Um, and, and I think as someone who values authenticity in teaching culture, I think it's important for my students to know like all sides of a country. And I think what's great about, I mean, maybe my kids, my kids, I think, uh, throughout this week, the one thing that I've noticed, the one word that's kind of popped up in my mind as I've uh, been working with my kids on this is that my students at my school are incredibly open-hearted. That's just kind of the word that's kind of resonated with me to describe my students. I think that's that makes them a little bit unusual, perhaps. Uh, a lot of teenagers, that's usually not how you would describe most teenagers as being open-hearted. My, my students are incredibly open-hearted, incredibly willing to listen and, and have their minds and their conceptions change. And that's like the best. Um, and so when they see a picture of China that is like, I don't know, like rural, not as nice. Um, they're eating foods like in a way that is that feels unfamiliar, perhaps not even palatable to them. Um, you know, I've showed them videos of like people who live in rural China who like raise their own sheep and then kill their own sheep to eat it. Um, and, and they're open to that. Like it's not something that makes them super comfortable, but because they're just, you know, really open hearted set of kids, this is something that they can look at and be like, oh, that's different, but that's real. Um, and I can appreciate that. That's like super awesome. And I feel like that's the, the reaction that is really ideal for this sort of thing. I can't say that that's guaranteed elsewhere. I mean, there are kids who are, will be jerks anywhere. Um, I'm just privileged enough for my kids to not be jerks and be and be really open to, to learning about these new things. And so I want to capitalize on that. You know, what can I say? Um, and so showing these short films where, ha where they depict China, Chinese-speaking areas in a really authentic way, a way that is authentic to Chinese people, which who you can't really fool, right, um, has been really valuable. And I feel like it's more valuable than just like showing them pictures or showing them, oh, China's like this, this city looks like this, this city is famous for this. Because again, those are things, things that they could just literally look up on their own. They can go and look up and see what industries Shanghai is famous for without me telling them. But it, may, it means so much more when they see it in the context of, you know, a greater story, which these films provide. Um, and so that's kind of like if there is a practical takeaway, or even if you're someone who's not a teacher, but you're kind of you, you're kind of like interested to see how exactly Chinese people in their hearts view something like Chinese New Year, a really great way is to look at these emotionally manipulative films. Um, can be a little bit over the top, but I feel like, you know, it will still tug at your heartstrings nonetheless. I'll leave a playlist that I compiled for my own students to kind of like preview um, on the show notes. So you can take a look at those. They're really, really good. But I think another concern that like teachers will have in terms 
themes of teaching Lunar New Year is that like there has to be some connection to language. This is probably particularly pertinent to teachers who are really, really real sticklers about the whole like 90%, 10% rule where like your classroom instruction, sh- classroom instruction should mostly be in the target language. And so that when your goal is that, things like culture tend to be kind of tricky to navigate because on the one hand, right, there's a lot about culture, things that include a lot of low frequency vocabulary that you might not have taught yet. Um, And so you might be tempted to be like, oh, let's only teach this in a very like superficial way that uses only the vocabulary that kids already know to say in Chinese, just so I can stick with my 90%, 10% rule. Um, Or you just do the entire thing in English and the kids are like, woohoo, we don't need to speak Chinese. Um, You know, I think this is a very like, it's not that controversial, but I think it's one of those things that like ends up being a matter of personal choice and conviction and taste, perhaps. For me, I think because I do a lot of TPRS, there is a lot of room for things like movie talk, picture talk, um, that allow you to integrate things, that allow you to maintain the sanctity of the the L2 in the classroom um, while still keeping things authentic. Now, I think this is something that takes like practice and skill, and I am definitely not a pro at this. Um, one of the things that I wanted to really do this year. I don't think I executed it that well, but um, there is a legend associated with the Lunar New Year or the Chinese New Year, because this is kind of like how Chinese people interpret the New Year, uh, called the the story of Nian, which is like Nian. Nian is like the, if you, those of you who know Chinese, that's the Nian, the Nian as in like Xinian, like ye, the word for year. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with the, with the, uh, with the legend, the legend for why like Chinese people wear red, um, why we put off firecrackers, why there's the lantern festival, things of that nature. Nature. A lot of those traditions are born out of this legend, the legend of Nian. In short, the story is like, there's this monster, he's named Nian, he goes around eating children. Uh, the villagers it, for whom these their children are being eaten cannot find this very unacceptable, um, but they're scared of this monster because this monster seems to not be scared of anything until they find out that the monster, Nian, is scared of three things. It's scared of uh, fire, loud noises, and the color red. And so the villagers are like, well, that makes their job easy. Let's just put off firecrackers, you know, two stones, one bird. I mean, no, what? Two, one stone, uh, two, two birds with one stone. Oh my goodness. Can't even English. Let's put off firecrackers. Let's wear red. Let's paint the town red. Uh, let's put up lanterns and then Nian gets scared away. That's the story. And so, um, uh, the story, like, if you look on YouTube, there's a lot of retellings of the story that are like very clearly meant for Western audiences, which is like fine. I don't think there's anything inherently problematic with it, but I do find it a little hokey to have kind of like, you know, Western takes on what feel to me to be very, very Chinese, culturally Chinese movie, uh, stories, if only because like also the, the translation uh, tends to feel kind of awkward. You know what I mean? And so um, I found as an alternative a, an animation of the Nian story that has no word and it's just animation and I was like this is perfect and so um, I wasn't able to do this as much with my this was a video that I wanted to use with my younger classes um, and and I wasn't able to kind of like execute it as well as I wanted to but I feel like in the future it's a good resource for kind of doing a a movie talk sort of thing and movie talk is a TPRS method where you just kind of like show a film and then you use the film as a visual kind of a launch pad to do some like circling with vocabulary to ask students questions to describe the scene things like that 
um, repetitively. So the students have a visual aid that is interesting um, while also being able to hear language of it being described in a very intentional, like circular manner, repetitive manner. And so um, that resource I found to be much more valuable than like the litany of other videos out there that tell the Nian story, but have like an English narration for it. I mean, it's one of those stories that I feel when I showed it to my kids, um, they understood the story without the English narration. It's not that complicated of a story, but I found that to be a really like great resource. I hope it doesn't get taken down because it's something that I know that I'll come back to in later years. The other thing that a lot of teachers tend to do with uh, Lunar New Year, with Chinese New Year, is that they tend to plan cultural activities outside of the classroom. So this is like when the cooking stuff comes in. I think I've done this exactly one year in the past where I did like a hot pot thing with uh, both my students and the international students that attend our school. I don't know. I think this is something that requires a whole ton of planning and is really great if you are doing it together with a department um, or if there's multiple Chinese teachers who are willing to plan the event or if you have like, um, you know, a larger community of Chinese parents who know how to prepare hot pot, know how to do dumplings, things like that. Uh, I've been very hesitant to kind of plan a lot of these activities because it's just it's a lot of work, man. Um, it's not a lot of work if you have a lot of people who are really into it and supporting it and know what they're doing um, and have the experience to do it. But I think given for me, I end up being like kind of a one man show for a lot of these things. And it's just a lot. And so um, I understand that like, you know, having these cultural activities, cultural experiences is actually kind of important. So I acknowledge this as a weakness on one point. But I think on the other hand, I think if you're you like, I don't know. I feel like Chinese teachers as a whole tend to be like the most overachievery of a lot of other teachers and some, sometimes in not the most um, time efficient ways. I would imagine there are many Chinese teachers in my position who are the only Chinese teacher in their department and they still do a lot of these cultural activities, plan it all out, do all the shopping. Oftentimes it's at their own personal financial expense, um, to which I'm just like, man, all the more power to you. I don't do it because I don't have the energy. And, you know, the fact that they're doing it really, you know, humbles me. Um, but I think at the same time, if you're a Chinese teacher, you're, you're going solo and you're seeing all these other Chinese teachers who are planning these really grand events um, to not feel bad that you can't pull it off on the same level. Uh, because a lot of the times this tends to be like a resourcing sort of thing. Resourcing being both in terms of time and energy and money, um, the energy being your energy. And so to not feel bad if you're looking at other Chinese teachers who are literally having like entire variety show evenings, like little versions of the New Year's Eve gala in their school that are like really incredibly well attended. And the entire community is really, you know, this is... This is very dependent on where you are um, and and who you're working with and what resources you have. And so I think that's, that tends to vary very, very widely for Chinese teachers all over the place. You're not going to have the same amount of resourcing and enthusiasm teaching in like a random public school in rural Arizona uh, as you would if you were teaching it in a, in a suburb in New Jersey where there's a ton of like diaspora Chinese people to support you um, and help you and like help you pull this off. And so to not feel bad. I'm kind of, kind of somewhere in the middle. For me, you know, we obviously do have a large international student population so there actually is some like school focused effort to kind of cater to them and then so my students end up getting getting folded into those activities sometimes which I'm really grateful for because that again means that like it doesn't have to come directly from me 
Um, and I, and, and while I don't have a lot of like Chinese parents who can like help me lead like, you know, dumpling making things, there's a lot of parents who are not Chinese who are very, very willing to help. But at the same time, it's kind of like we can provide resources and we can help, but we can't really like help lead. You know what I mean? And so given those unique circumstances and given that it's like for us also, this is the end of our semester and I'm like trying to grade and figure out how to like close my grades and stuff. It's just a lot going on. So sometimes you kind of have to have to cut your losses so anyway i'm saying all this kind of to make myself feel better uh for not planning a like uh new year's eve gala at my school like the many other chinese teachers i'm seeing doing um but it's important as a whole to keep things in perspective and to really you know just do what you can um just because it's chinese new year does not mean this has to take over your life i feel like a lot of chinese people let this kind of like, like if you think about this if you're not chinese uh think of this as kind of like being christmas and all the drama and stress that happens during christmas for a lot of what Western families. It's like that for Chinese New Year for a lot of Chinese families. There's no need to replicate that stress just for the sake of having that stress, right? And so I, I'm i trying to be reasonable with myself for that. So that's something that like I'm going to probably think about more in the future. Um, uh, you know, hopefully in a place where I'm more experienced, have more energy, are better equipped, things like that. But for me, you know, I've been in this business for six years, six years, still trying to figure out the business of teaching Chinese properly. And so let's take things one at a time. So all that said, um, I think one thing that as I'm talking about this, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of talking about this from sort of a detached point of view, um, just because, you know, again, I mentioned earlier that Chinese teachers who are really into this, this almost feels natural for them in the sense that like, it's like, if you grew up with the qifen of Lunar New Year, um, qifen's been kind of a funny word to translate. I've been actually using this in my classes a lot because it's helped to kind of contextualize, um, you know, what Chinese New Year means for me, um, as well as what it might mean for them. But one thing that's important to remember is like qifen. Um, qifen, I think, is one that if you look in the dictionary, it's defined as like atmosphere. But I think a better, more like colloquial way to translate qifen is like vibes, right? There are no like Chinese New Year vibes around in, in the U.S. during this time of year, unless you're like in Chinatown. And even if you're in Chinatown, it kind of feels like, ah, oh, this is like a Chinatown uh, Chinese New Year vibe. It's very, very different from when you, if you were to go to China or a Chinese speaking area um, and celebrate Chinese New Year there, from what I've heard. Because truth be told, I've never actually been in a Chinese speaking country during Chinese New Year. So for me, I actually have no idea what the qifen surrounding Chinese New Year actually is. Again, the comparisons to Christmas, I feel, if you're coming from a Western perspective, are very apt because it's like, imagine celebrating, knowing that Christmas as a concept exists um, and knowing of the traditions associated with it and then maybe even knowing how important of a family holiday is it, it is for some people but never having the never really understanding and being part of that qifen for yourself. I think um, if you're if, if you're someone who's who's ever wondered why like in Japan or in Asia like Christmas is seen as a holiday for your to hang out with your boyfriend and girlfriend or and eat KFC like and you think of that as super bizarre well that's what happens when like you know that a holiday exists and you kind of have this secondhand knowledge of it um but you've never really understood it and experienced what it means first and have it like hit your heart in a certain way um that's kind of what lunar new year is for not just like non-chinese people non-asian people but for people like me who are ethnically chinese grew up in a relatively like culturally chinese family but because we've never been 
in and around the qi fun of Chinese New Year, it's really hard to not see this holiday as being something kind of external rather than internal. Back in 2016, this was my second year of teaching, um, I actually wrote a blog post uh, about this very topic. You can actually find it on my blog, which is blog.patricialu.net. Um, you scroll back a few pages. It's back from 2016. Uh, this was back when, again, I had just started teaching Chinese and I had for the first time some some responsibility to feel like I needed to celebrate Chinese New Year. Um, in the past, when I was in college, right, um, there were, like, you know, Chinese student associations who, like, really made a big deal out of Chinese New Year because, I mean, it's the Chinese student association, right? Um, I was on the e-board for that for, like, one year. Um, and so it was a part of planning that. And, and, and it was, like, it was fine because, and it felt really natural then, if only because so many people on campus were from China. Like, and so it, for them, they knew the chifen of Chinese New Year and they were trying to, they knew what that was and they were trying to replicate it overseas. It obviously wasn't going to be the exact same thing, but they had some sort of reference point. And so for me, um, my job was just kind of to be along for the ride and enjoy it, right? But once I started teaching, I realized I didn't have that sort of like anchor point anymore. And it was kind of, you know, up to me at my school to kind of lead that charge. And it felt very much like blind leading the blind, right? Um, and, And for the first time, I really had to wrestle with like, oh my goodness, how am I supposed to teach this culture that is not really my culture, I'm realizing right now? Um, Which feels like a very silly thing the more that I think about it now, because to be honest, right, you know, there's a ton of Spanish teachers and French teachers who don't come from, who didn't grow up in Spanish-speaking or Francophone cultures, and they still teach, like, Dia de los Muertos or, like, other holidays or culture things like that. They teach it nonetheless, right? They're not complaining about it like I am. Um, and so, you know, I think one thing that's important for me to remember is, like, you don't have to, like, feel like you are the, uh, the possessor of a certain cultural artifact in order for you to teach it, right? You know, that's not a prerequisite to all of this, but it definitely, from my perspective, feels a little bit strange to teach what feels like should be my own culture as not my own culture, as if this were like, you know, you only had two choices, right? Um, It's kind of like with regards to teaching culture, you're either like inviting someone into your own home because it's your own culture, which I feel like a lot of Chinese teachers can do because, again, they've experienced the chifen of Chinese New Year. And so they're they're bringing that with them and they're inviting people who are unfamiliar into that culture with them, right? Or um, if you're not someone from that culture, it's like you're looking at that culture like you're visiting a museum, right? Or you're taking a trip, like you're taking a field trip. And so it's like, you know, in that in that situation, everyone, including the teacher, is not actually a part of the culture. It's just the teacher knows factually, maybe, or even experientially, maybe because they lived in that country for a little while. I don't know. Um, they know a little bit about the traditions, but it's still not their traditions. And so the entire group, teacher included, is looking at the culture as if they're visiting a museum, right? So it's like if you're teaching culture, you're either inviting someone into your home or you're taking them to a museum, taking them on a field trip, so to speak. And I feel like for me, I... I don't, and I think neither of those things are bad. I think there's actually authenticity in both. I think it's easy to knock the museum approach to things as being like inauthentic. Um, But I think 
you know, it's valuable to study something knowing your position as an outsider. Um, and for the teacher who is also an outsider to also convey that, right? I think there is room for authenticity and depth to both of those perspectives. Even if you're someone who's just like, oh, you shouldn't be like a cultural tourist uh, to someone else's holiday. Like bring someone who celebrates the holiday to do the to do the teaching for you, which, you know, not a bad idea, but I think there is some value to teaching a holiday teaching a holiday as an outsider to that holiday with their students who are also outsiders. And so um, to have that deeper discussion, I think is really, really valuable, really, really nuanced as well, if you're willing to go there. But I think there's value in doing that. But for me, I feel like I fall into neither of those groups, Um, you know, because again, my house uh, does not contain, contains bits and pieces of that culture, but not really the whole thing. Um, But at the same time, I would feel super weird about like, talking about, again, what feels like to be my own culture, something that I actually do celebrate with my family, um, but still speaking about it as if it were not mine, as if my own culture were locked away behind a glass window in a museum. It would feel just very unnatural. And so I think one thing that I keep coming back to is in my classroom is just authenticity, authenticity. And then having my students know through that, that my experience, right, that there exists like this third perspective even, right, um, in in viewing these holidays, this, this idea that like, you know, this is not my culture completely and these are the reasons why uh but at the same time it is my culture completely and these are the reasons why um not to say that like every single like your lessons should be you know you as a teacher kind of like existentially pouring out your own life struggles in front of your students i don't this is not what that's about but it's more kind of a matter of perspective right um and i think again this is particularly important for i mean this is important for any teacher of world language, any teacher who teaches cultures other than Western cultures um, or interacts with students on that level. But I think particularly for Chinese, because of that, like, dichotomatic, like, dichotomy um, between, you know, Chinese, Chinese culture is either foreign or not foreign, right? Either you are, it's something that is, like, it's, it's just very, like, you know, the, I've mentioned in the previous podcast that uh, historically the antithesis of the American identity has been the Chinese slash East Asian identity. Um, and so it's, it's easy then to kind of dichotomize that relationship and be like, you are either part of this culture or you're an outsider to this culture. Um, and Asian Americans, diaspora Chinese people kind of fit straight in the middle where things are very complicated. But the fact of the matter is that like, you know, for my students, that's actually the portion of Chinese culture that they will interact with the most. Um, you know, I mean, this is very demographic dependent. Um, you know, my students who come from a relatively privileged-ish uh, background where most of the kids will probably be heading off to some, you know, decent university in the future. Most of the Chinese people that they'll interact with will be Chinese Americans. Um, and so for them to understand that perspective as the first step uh, of, of our, you know, overall learning goal of having our kids be able to really understand and empathize uh, people from Chinese speaking backgrounds, I think for them to understand that that's an identity that exists is really, really important. And so what makes this tricky then is also knowing that I haven't figured this out yet. I really don't think anyone has figured this out yet. This idea of this um, so-called third way of uh, interpreting diaspora culture. Diaspora culture being such an incom- like incredibly complicated and hard to define sort of thing. Um, and, it, and it becomes complicated when you try to fit in things that are solidly of one culture into this middle ground. And, you know, the, the very cultural thing I'm talking about here is something like Chinese New Year, where there is this whole suite of like traditions and superstitions and things that you do that 
are just just super Chinese. You know, there's really no other way to describe it. Things like. Uh, why do you not? Why do we eat fish for New Year? But then why do we not flip over the fish、um, when you're done eating it? Like you only eat one side of the fish, and then you pick out this instead of like flipping it over to eat the other side. You like pick it out from the bottom, stuff like that. Why do you clean the house?、Uh, why do you hang up like New Year sayings on the wall? Like stuff like that that just feels very, for lack of a better word, like very ethnic. <laughs> Um, how do you fit that within a a diaspora sort of identity, right? Which I think opens itself up to a greater discussion of what that diaspora identity is.、Um, I had an interesting sort of thing happen to me a couple of years ago, where、um, I grew up in a Chinese American church, and it was like, I mean, like Chinese American in the sense that it was like a Chinese immigrant church, and the Chinese Americans that you might think of them as being like second generation were like the kids of those Chinese immigrants.、Um, so I grew up in this church, and a couple years back, back I was brought back with another friend of mine who also grew up in church.、Uh, we were asked to talk. To a,、um, a group of Chinese parents at the church、uh, to talk about, you know, the connection between being Chinese American and then growing up as Christian, which to me is like that's I could talk for hours about that easily.、Um, But the discussion ended up being this like extended Q and A, where a lot of the parents—I mean, it was a church event—but a lot of the parents seemed very more concerned about like how to raise their children as being as acknowledging their Chinese identity while also wrestling with. I think a lot of the parents were, or, or some of the parents were, kind of alarmed, you know, for lack of a better word, of this idea that like、um, their kids were turning out to be. Way, way more American, quote unquote, than they had wanted them to be, and、um, as if this were like a zero sum game, as if the more American they were, the less Chinese they would be. So a lot of the parents seemed a little bit like nervous that、um, you know their their children were essentially losing their culture. Right, that's a term that you hear often.、Um, parents are really concerned about that, and so for me, as someone who speaks Chinese. Still teaches Chinese. They didn't. A lot of parents didn't know a lot about me beyond that. They knew that I grew up in a Chinese church,、um, that I taught Chinese then in、uh, in school now, and then spoke Chinese.、Um, and so a lot of some of the questions I got were like, "Why did you? How did you keep up your Chinese?" And I'm like, the, the simple answer is like, I spent two hundred thousand dollars of my parents' money to study in college, which I don't think is the answer they really wanted.、Um, but but there was this overarching concern of like. How do I ensure that my child retains their cultural identity as a Chinese person? I don't know if this is something that is really all that distinct to Chinese people. I think there's a lot of like immigrant、uh, families, immigrant parents who really do fear of their children of of their like、uh, cultural lineage being cut off、um, after a certain generation. Or, or I mean, you know, even the intrinsic heartbreak of knowing that your child、um, embraces a foreign culture rather than your own culture, which really, as if you're a parent, just really means one thing, and that is you have less to relate to them with.、Um, which, from a personal and emotional level, is A really tough thing, and I totally, totally get that. But at the same time, I think, you know, as someone who is a consistent proponent as a Chinese teacher of like not necessarily quote unquote preserving one's culture, but 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 acknowledging, you know, all of who you are, I think is is probably the best way to kind of frame this.、Um, I think there is something to be said about the idea that Asian Americanism is not. Does not mean you are fifty percent Asian and fifty percent American, right? No Asian American is eating a hamburger with chopsticks. That is not what Asian Americanism looks like. But I think a lot of folks、um, 
kind of see that as kind of see the Asian American identity as a zero sum game. As kind of like、um, you need to preserve both. It's like the best of both worlds, which is such a term that I find to be so inaccurate and kind of problematic because it's not really the because the best of both worlds kind of sort of. Implies that both of those worlds are kept distinct and pure to an extent, right?、Um, because the idea is kind of like once those two worlds are all jumbled up and mixed up together, then it resembles like nothing anyone is familiar with, right? But I really think that that is what the Asian American identity really is. It is kind of this jumbled up sort of mess between multiple cultures that resembles neither culture. Um, and that scares a lot of people. I think, if only because we are scared of things that are unfamiliar. We are scared of things that just feel really sacrilegious because you're blending two things that ought that are good enough on their own. Let's admit that、um, that don't really need improvement by like you know this sort of like fusion cuisine of cultures.、Um, but that is what the Asian American identity really ends up being, right? And I think it has to be that for one really practical reason, and that is Asian American experiences. Very widely, depending on where you are, I'm not even going to like limit this to Asian American, like Asian diaspora anywhere. It differs so widely depending on where,、uh, where you grew up and where that identity is being manifest. Right. I remember one of those mind blowing things I ever experienced as a young adult was、um, my mom has a college friend who lives in Paris. Um, and so my family was in France about five years ago on vacation, and so we went to go see my mom's friend. And so my mom's friend has like two daughters that are a little younger than me. It was like the most like this was the first time I had met like other Taiwanese people my age who grew up diaspora, but like not American diaspora, right? So it was like really wild to like hear her like hear their daughters speaking French to each other, but then they go and speak Chinese and be like a Taiwanese Mandarin accent. I like love it when that happens. Um, I, I've had the fortune of like interacting with more and more people like that who are like diaspora, but not American diaspora,、um, but also have Taiwanese roots, and it's like the most wild thing to like for them to like speak another language or like English, but another like dialect of English, and then all of a sudden they start speaking Chinese, and you're like, that sounds so familiar to me. It's like the most wild thing. I don't think this is unique to Chinese people at all.、Um, I'd love to hear about your own experience with that because I think that this is like the coolest thing ever to find that point of connection,、um, despite different backgrounds. But I think that really speaks to one really important thing, and that is again the the breadth of the diaspora experience. And so from that practical notion alone, you really can't say that like you know diaspora Asian experience, Asian American experience, if you will, is fifty percent one thing and fifty percent of the other.、Um, and if we acknowledge that it's not fifty percent of one thing, fifty percent of the other, and that it is this distinct. Mixed up, jumbled up blend of things that is different for every single person, depending on their own personal cultural context.、Um, then that is something that is worth being celebrated. It's something new, right? You're 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 heralding basically the birth of a new culture,、um, and and that is something that's super cool. I understand though that like a lot of folks, perhaps even those who are listening to this podcast, who are looking at.、Um, The things that are that they are losing as a result of this mixing up,、um, I I I, I get that as well. I think that was where I started when I first decided to major in East Asian studies in college. So if you guys don't know the story, the reason why I decided to major in East Asian studies,、um, I made the decision very very early on before I even got to college,、um, and the reason for it was mostly out of spite. It was mostly like 
you know, I've studied American history for like 12 years of my life in public schooling, and I know nothing about my people. So I'm going to spend my parents' money in college to learn about the history of my people. Um, because I felt like there was this part of me that was missing that needed to be filled with like, I don't know, a degree in East Asian studies. Um, but, but I get that, this idea that like, uh, you don't feel like you 100% of the time identify with like, you know, the broader, you know, culture that you're surrounded with, you know, whether that be American culture or French culture, like my mom's uh, friend's kids, um, what have you. Uh, and so you feel like because you can't feel yourself being 100% fulfilled by that surrounding culture, you the alternative is to find your other option, which is um, your parents' culture. And you're, you're, you're trying to seek out whether or not you can fill those missing pieces through those through through parts that can be found in that culture as well and so maybe some of you who are like uh you're adults and you're like i want to i i regret not learning chinese i feel like i'm a quote-unquote bad asian because i don't know chinese as well as i should um you know even on a deeper level you're like if i could communicate in chinese with my family more fluently then i'd be able to find a part of myself that i feel like has been missing yeah i empathize with that i feel like i identify with that a whole lot um and i'm not gonna lie i'm gonna i would say that like my learning Chinese has really helped me to find those missing pieces. Um, but it's also not the end-all be-all, I feel. It's not as if, like, you know, I, I've traveled, when I was in college, I traveled to Taiwan many times, virtually every summer, um, with the kind of expectation that I would eventually move there and live there, uh, because I was so convinced that America was, like, not for me, and that Taiwan was where I could find home. Um, and I think, through those experiences, I actually began to realize more and more how Taiwan was not home. Um, it felt like home in some ways, but in other ways, it also became really apparent to me that like I would also not ever be um, fully, you know, a native there. I would never fully find that to be home. Um, not to say that like I went back and was like, oh, okay, so America is it. Um, one thing about the diaspora experience is that you never really find home. Um, one of my great friends, uh, who is living in Nairobi now, uh, does such a great job of articulating this in our conversations together. The idea of like a diaspora being your true home, being the one thing that you relate with rather than a concrete country or culture, um, rather than saying, oh, I identify more with being Chinese. It's more like I identify more with like people who 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 are of many cultures and and can't find home anywhere um that is where home is and so i think that's a really scary thing uh for those of us who think in terms of concrete terms um and who want to find their roots somewhere and that doesn't mean that like again if you're asian american like and you identify fully with like america as being your home i think that's where like the variation takes place right that 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 wide breadth of the diaspora experience does encompass people who are like i have found home in the country where my parents immigrated to that is where i find myself to be most at ease i think that and then and then you have folks who move back to their parents home countries and live and work there long term that is also as much a part of the diaspora the asian american experience as anything else and so to link all of this back to chinese new year right um, I think on the one hand, because Chinese New Year is something that's so linked with tradition um, and so is feels so firmly planted in that like 100 percent Chinese culture sort of universe. Um, there is this temptation to see Chinese New Year as being this preservation of that like home culture as being like, this is where I can find something that resembles home. And then you go there and you're like, but this doesn't actually feel like home. Right. This idea of like, you know, you go to. 
um, I don't know, if you're like a young Asian American like me, you go to like your other Asian American friends' houses um, and everyone there brings their own traditions from their own families, like what they grew up doing, whether it's like playing mahjong or like, you know, you know, someone brings, wants to do hot pot because that's what their family did, but someone else wants to do dumplings and someone else wants to do noodles and someone else wants to do like something else. And, and you're bringing facets of your own home, your own traditions to this whole, like, you know, what is a very physical manifestation of that diaspora and nothing makes sense. I think one thing that kind of like tugs, that makes Lunar New Year kind of tug at the hearts of a, of a lot of diaspora, uh, second generation Chinese Americans is that Chinese New Year for us represents um, the home that we grew up in. And a lot of the times the manifestations of our celebrations of Chinese New Year outside of that home is us wanting to hold on to home. And the thing is like when you're away, right, there's, it's really difficult to really replicate that in its fullness, right? And so as a result, you kind of get that kind of jumbled upness that I've been mentioning for a while, you know, that physical manifestation of all your friends bringing their own family traditions to the same friend's apartment, um, you know, for this, for this New Year's celebration and and none of it feels quite right to any of us but um i think this is lunar new year chinese new year is one of those places within the diaspora culture that um gives us room to create new traditions uh gives us room to kind of uh take something that feels very traditionally distinct to being fully fully chinese and making it a part of the Asian American identity, making it its own thing, right? And it's not as if like other cultures haven't done this already. I mean, the the example that comes immediately to mind is like St. Patrick's Day, which is like not a great example because I'm sure that like Irish people in Ireland look at how like Irish Americans celebrate St. Patrick's Day in the U.S. and they're just like shaking their heads in disappointment. Hopefully what comes out of the Asian American community, the Chinese American community uh, with regards to Lunar New Year does not evoke that level of disappointment. Um, But I think there is an argument to be made for wanting to hold on to Lunar New Year, wanting to hold on to something that is precious to who we know our past, what we know our past to be. Um, but then also choosing to define that for ourselves and not feeling beheld to getting it right. Um, I think what's what's really interesting about Chinese New Year as it's celebrated in China and Chinese-speaking communities is that like we have this expectation. Uh, I think this is largely a Western sort of informed expectation that Chinese New Year, particularly the Nianye Fan, particularly the New Year's meal, ought to look in a certain way, right? Because we're used to thinking of holiday meals as being like there are traditional dishes that are associated with those holidays. Like what do people eat for Chinese New Year? Great question. People eat different things. That's the thing. There is like, there are some like common motifs, right? You know, noodles tend to be a thing because like noodles are long and you want to have a long life. Like, you know, you know, there's fish because nian nian you yu, ha ha ha, Chinese puns. Like there's like stuff like that. But at the heart of things, and this is what I've been telling my students all week too, is that there aren't really like concrete these are dishes that are served at every single New Year's meal at every single house. What ends up being the New Year's meal is like, uh, what do you guys like to eat that can feed a large quantity of people all at once? You know, if you're living in the north, right, probably going to eat dumplings, right? If you're living in southern China, it's probably going to be hot pot. It looks different for every family, even in China. Why can't it look different for, you know, the, so, the Chinese families that we're making for ourselves amongst the diaspora, right? Why is there this need to kind of preserve this, this purity that isn't really there? 
I think that the diaspora experience, uh, whether it be like, you know, no matter what, where you find your roots, whether it's Chinese or some other country, I think the diaspora experience is all about finding all of yourself in one place, right? Like, you know, a lot of it is just kind of like trying to figure out again where home is. And then you end up realizing that home is really nowhere. It feels, it ends up being a fool's errand a lot of the time to try to kind of find your footing either in one place or another. It's tempting because we see successful examples of Americans living that full American, so called American life,、um, you know, with pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving,、uh, turkey on Thanksgiving, stockings by the fireplace on Christmas, you know, so on and so forth. And we want to be a part of that. Like, we want to participate in the fullness of Christmas and all those holidays, but we can't because、um, it's just not fully where we come from. And then you look at, you look for the alternative in something like Chinese New Year, and we, we want to connect. With that fully, but then we realize, you know, again, it feels like putting on clothes that don't belong to us.、Um, I feel like trying to identify yourself as a member of the diaspora in that way ends up being a fool's errand、um, because for us, home is nowhere, but it is also everywhere. Um, it is home is amongst people who, who share these experiences much like us. Home is that feeling you get when you meet someone outside of your home country who they start speaking your heritage language and they speak it with the same accent that you do. Like that to me, I feel is where it most feels like home. That's like one touch point that, like, if, if I find another person out there who grew up in a different country than me and they speak Taiwanese Mandarin, I'm just like, we are friends, like, we are family.、Um, And it's not even just like Taiwanese Mandarin, it's like the same like sort of like second generation, I went to Chinese school, Taiwanese Mandarin sort of,、uh, sort of thing, like that kind of Chinglish, like that's, that's where home is. And I feel as we're reflecting upon like Lunar New Year or any of these cultural holidays, right? I feel like this is something that like in the language classroom, again, if you're looking at this from a teaching perspective or even a learning perspective, we're used to one of two approaches. It's either like I invite you into my home because it's my home, it's my culture, or We're, we're going to the museum and we're looking at someone else's culture through a glass window.、Um, and the point of today is talking about where I found myself, which is in neither of those places. And I think a lot of us are in neither of those places,、um, which makes something like Lunar New Year kind of an awkward holiday for all of us because it forces us to confront、um, you know, where exactly we find home. And, and I think. You know, to know wherever you are in, in that journey, that、uh, wherever you are is legitimate and valid.、Um, you know, you can, again, you know, it's, it's, it's not static for anyone. And I think the, the sum of your life experiences and the people you encounter,、um, the more people you encounter, the more people you talk to will help you re- refine what the identity actually looks like. So I encourage you to do more of that,、um, whoever you are, wherever you are. So,、um, anyway. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope,、um, you know, as the Lunar New Year holiday goes on, however you celebrate it, whoever you celebrate it with, I hope it is a time of great thoughtfulness for you, reflection,、um, and also just new beginnings as a whole.、Uh, go ahead and, and, and go to the show notes at badchineseteacher.com and take a look at those really cheesy, emotionally manipulative、uh, short films on Chinese New Year. It will warm your heart in ways that, like, you don't want to admit as it did mine.、Um, Yeah, and, and, and also on the show notes, also link、uh, the, my blog post from 2016 that kind of was my first foray into answering this question. Hopefully,、um, I'd love to hear your stories on this as well. I think it's different for everyone, but I think, again, this podcast is all about connections, and I'd love to connect with you on that. If you want to connect in more tangible ways, you can obviously always follow this podcast on social media. On Instagram, we are at Bad Chinese Teacher. On Twitter, we are at Bad Chinese Pod. And once again, show notes as well as show information. 
information um, are found on the website, which is badchineseteacher.com. If you want to connect with me, you can also find me on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Patricia Liu. On Twitter, I'm at Patricia S.Q. Liu. And you can find my latest writing at my blog at blog.patricialiu.com. Net. So, happy holidays to you all. Have a wonderful Chinese New Year. All that stuff.、Um, and I will see you next week. Bye bye.